0: I'm delighted this morning to welcome two new members into our membership, and that would be Bob and Sherry Pennison if y'all will come forward and get your certificates, and y'all be sure to welcome them into our membership. Bonnie, are we still getting um, recruits for the play? Or am I supposed to make an announcement on that? Okay, there are some parts available if anybody would like to. Adult parts. This is for uh, only adults, right? (laughs) Now we get down to the truth. (laughs) Mike is uh, that's Bonnie's uh, husband, Mike Dixon has been so gracious as to volunteer to play the king's part, right? Yeah, so if anyone would like to be a king, (laughs) we would take a lady and dress her up with a mustache or something. Anyway, (laughs) I know Mike would approve of that. So uh, see Vonnie afterwards if that's uh, something you'd like to do. Let's prepare ourselves this morning in our usual fashion, and that would be... um, few moments of silent prayer and during that time we have the opportunity to name privately to God the Father any unconfessed sins which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that you have given us to continue to grow in grace and knowledge. We thank you for this church, that you have yet churches around the country that are standing for truth. We thank you that we still have freedom to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray that you will help us to concentrate this morning, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to continue this morning with the series, Christians, Government, and Romans 13. There seem to be a lot of interest these days with regards to uh, people and the government. There's one particular person that has been very much in the forefront of Doing his best to limit the size of government, this person had a rally. I think it was a week or so ago that had, they say, anywhere from 300 to 500,000 people at the Capitol. And it's, I guess what I'm giving you this morning is a cautionary note, because um, this this person has um, trans translated or transferred, segued, whatever you want to call it, marched into the what people would call the religious arena. And we have to be very careful when that occurs. You can support someone wholeheartedly on their stands with regards to uh, the Christian and government, but when it gets into the theological, spiritual, or religious realm, You have to make clear distinctions. When a person that is a Mormon says that this nation needs to get back to God, that is a true statement. But you have to make sure that you are recognizing to that person it's the Mormon God, which is not the God of the Bible. Mormonism, as hard as it has tried to become mainstream Christianity, is still a cult They do not worship the Jesus Christ that we do. So I'm just throwing that out there for you to chew on and make proper application. I'm not disparaging anyone, but there are pastors, rabbis, priests, all types of people that go and support this movement or this person. I don't know if it's the person or the movement, but a fundamental pastor that is square on doctrine will not be part of that. I think it's part of the ecumenical movement, and we have to be aware of that. So I just thought I'd throw that out uh, before we start on our... Actually, what we're doing is a review. I'll put it on the board for you here. (coughs) We've gone from the beginning of this, and I always give you the cautionary points, I guess you could say, that has to do that this has nothing to do with political parties or politicians or it doesn't have anything to do with politics. It has to do with the relationship a Christian has with their government, biblically speaking. And we've also noted that it's not trying to get anyone to vote, not vote, or vote in any particular way. And it certainly is not in any way trying to promote uh, rebellion or a revolution because that is very clearly and very strongly condemned in the Bible. What we're looking at is the perspective that Christians should have towards authority. Not only God's authority, but authority in all the human realm. And that would have to do with authority in the family, authority in the church, authority in government, authority that is in uh, management, and so on. So we got to the point of the Scriptures last time because I delineated again the three viewpoints that I see that have to do with the Christian and government. And that's the first viewpoint is that government is all-powerful, It's not limited, and you are to comply with everything. The second viewpoint has to do with the government being limited in authority in matters of faith, but faith only. And the third viewpoint has to do with the limitation of government, not only in faith, but also in matters of justice and freedom. We ended that quick review. I'm calling this a quick review. I'm trying to make it quick, but it's hard to do that sometimes. So we're going to start with the scriptures that we have already gone through in the regular notes. And this is just a capsulized form of what I gave in the regular notes to bring us up to speed in verse 4, which is where we'll begin as soon as we finish verses 1 through 3 of Romans chapter 13 in this review. Is everybody up to speed now? Okay. Okay. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. You can either look in your Bible or look up here or both. That every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now, literally in the Greek this says, every soul submit to superior authorities. That's as close as I could get from the literal Greek. Every person, no matter what his or her position may be, is answerable to authority. You know, you can't get away from authority. I'm going to throw a $5 word at you. Authority is ubiquitous. There's no place on this planet that you can get away from it. Especially teenagers need to learn that. They think that they can get away from the home and be away from authority. (laughs) I'm sorry, that's laughable they're going to find out so fast that the authority they had at home wasn't so bad after all. There's a mean, cruel world out there and uh, they find that out when they try to get out from under the authority of their parents. So everybody is answerable to God because God is the ultimate authority and no legitimate authority exists apart from Him. That is important to remember. God is the ultimate authority, and He has delegated authority in the human realm. And if God did not delegate that authority, it is not legitimate authority. This is a general statement regarding submission to superior authority. That's what it is. It's just a simple, general statement. And as I've said already, in the regular notes that this whole part of Scripture, Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, is based upon a government functioning in the capacity in which it was designed under its limitations. And that means it is functioning as a minister or a servant, if you will, a slave of God for good. That's the whole context that's given in these seven verses. Now, no one has authority from himself since all legitimate authority has been delegated by God. And when one assumes authority that is not from God, then it is counterfeit, illegitimate, and therefore requires no respect or submission. So, there's a lot of authority in this world that has not been delegated by God. For instance, you can look at Warlords, despots, tyrants, even mafia heads, these all have authority. but God did not delegate any of that authority, therefore it is illegitimate. These are actually criminals, and they are not we are not required to submit to that. I'm trying to bring this trying to be fancy, oh okay. Well, I'm not so fancy after all. What I was trying to do is not blur it for you. <laughs> Let's go back up here. I'm sorry. I'll, this is what I was not going to do. My computer at his home. I practiced doing it. See this little slide here? I was just going to slide it down a little bit. Now, I'm just going to use the down arrow, I guess. I'm, I'm trying to keep it from blurring. I'm still not right, am I? There you go, number two verse 2 therefore he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of god and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves this is very easy to explain anyone you see when it says therefore he who resists it's referring to anyone citizen or ruler who resists the legitimate authority over them has opposed the authority structure of god and brings condemnation on themselves that's what Ordinance means in the Greek. It's a structure. It's a way that God has organized His delegated authority. And anyone that opposes that structure is opposing God and brings destruction among themselves. Now, Romans chapter 13, verse 3. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior. Just want to make sure you got it. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. This verse continues from the standpoint of rulers who are functioning within the authority structure designated by God. The Bible puts restraint on those to whom God delegates authority and they are responsible to Him to stay within the limits He has set. Well, where are the limits? In Romans 13, we already see that they are a cause of fear, not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Dropping down, do what is good and you will have praise from the same. When we get to verse 4, it even describes it in more detail. So the limit that God has put on God is they are to be His servants for good. Anytime they get outside the realm of being His servants for good, then they have stepped out of His structured order and they bring condemnation upon themselves. The Bill of Rights puts limits on those in government and they are responsible and accountable to both the people and to God to stay within those limits. The Bill of Rights actually is superior to the Constitution, even though it was brought in as amendments. It was actually brought in, there were 12 amendments, two of them were rejected, and the first, uh, or the 10 that were left, are called the Bill of Rights, are the first 10 amendments. And that's unfortunate, because an amendment, something that's part of the Constitution, uh, can be amended. But these are inalienable rights. The first thing that its first article says, Congress shall not. And it is curtailing and abridging the things that Congress and the government can do. Just thought I'd throw that in so you would know. I try not to call them the first, second, third, fourth, and so on uh, amendments. I like to call them articles because that's what they are. They are articles found in the Bill of Rights. So the government is limited on both counts with regards to the Bill of Rights, which they cannot go outside of, and to God Himself, both. Good behavior is treating others the way you would like to be treated and fulfilling any commitment commitments that you make. Pretty simple, right? Can't anyone pretty well figure out what is good and what is evil? If you're treating others in a way that is not the way you would want to be treated, then you're not behaving good. It's not good behavior. It's that simple. Of course, evil would be uh, treating people or not going into a contract with someone or promising someone something and not fulfilling it. That is not good behavior. So that's as simple as it is with regards to the Bible. We have what is known as the golden rule, do unto others as they would have, uh, as you would have them do unto you. And that's essentially bore out in the scriptures. God has given rulers the authority to punish evil, to punish evildoers, but only evildoers. Those who do not encroach on the rights of others have good behavior and should uh, be praised, not punished. See, as long as you're not encroaching upon someone else's rights. As long as you're giving them their freedom and their privacy, you're going along minding your own business, doing your own thing, and you do what you say you're going to do, then your behavior is good. And what, should, what does the Scripture say that government should do to those type of people? Praise them, right? If you get outside of those bounds, then the government wills the sword, and there is punishment for those who get outside those boundaries. See, we're all limited. God has given rulers the authority to punish evildoers, but only evildoers. I want to make sure you have that thought squarely in your mind. Now, people have grown accustomed to being punished through fines or imprisonment when they have not encroached on the rights of others. Millions of people receive such punishment every year for such things as not having a seatbelt buckled, carrying a weapon for self-defense, spanking their children, and a multitude of other things that are not evil. These are things that we have the biblical right to do. We have the biblical right to defend ourselves. We have the biblical right to... Spank our children. In fact, that's not just a right, I see it as an obligation. I can't find the biblical right to not buckle your seatbelt, but I think the principle is there. <laughs> Federal, state, county, and local governments create literally tens of thousands of codes rules, statutes, and regulations every year which impose stiff penalties on people who are trying to provide for their families, minding their own business, and treating other neighbors the way they would like to be treated. This is evil, but it's not the people but the government that is guilty of it. This has been happening over a long period of time. The last time I search for statistics with regards to the regulations. The Federal Register is a governmental organization that keeps track of such things. And in 2003, there were right at 78,000 pages cranked out by the federal government alone on regulations and new rules and laws that every one of us are oblige to obey supposedly and carry punishment if you do not obey them. L- listen to that again, right at eighty thousand pages. If you start how, how high would eighty thousand pages stack up? Now that was in 2003. What do you suppose it is today? And so what I'm saying is the Bible says that those rulers, whether it is a king, a potentate, a prime minister, or whoever, government rulers, are to do what to those who do good? Praise them. And doing good is what? Treating others the way you would have them treat you and doing what you say you're going to do. And when you have, I don't know how many there is today, date, these multiple tens of thousands of regulations that are cranked cranked out every day and they eventually trickle down to where you're going to find out that you've broken one of these and may be under uh, some type of penalty. People wake up one day and they say, what happened? Where did our freedom go? Well, that's what's happened. They've cranked it out and it really would be very simple if We were operating the way that we should. Now, there's something I have that I found. I was reading uh, Thomas Paine, which put out the Common Sense Papers. And Thomas Paine, how many of you have heard of Thomas Paine? Most of you? Good. He put out a a pamphlet, 1776, called Common Sense. The first printing, they made 50,000 copies, and it sold out the first day. The second printing was 50,000. It sold out the first day. They figure that probably some 500,000 of the colonists had read it. There's only 3 million in the colonies when that came about. And it really struck a chord. This is when people started understanding through common sense and through biblical principles that. They, just because they were Christians or believers did not mean that they had to submit to tyranny. In fact, the clarion call of the colonists during that war was resistance to God, is I'm, excuse me, resistance to tyranny is obedience to God because they had read what Thomas Paine had written and they knew their Bibles. This is something that was about, I'm not sure of the time frame. It was in the... Material I was reading about uh, Tom Paine, and it's called "Love Without End," and it's by uh, Glenda Green. What's so great about this is what I just gave you in that really short review of the first three scriptures of Romans chapter thirteen is encapsulated in this. I don't—it's not a poem. I don't know. All I know it was written by Glenda uh, Green, and I'm going to go through it. And as I go through it, I'll make a few comments as we go. True power resides with God. That kind of sounds like Romans thirteen does doesn't it? And is inherent thereto. Through enduring connections with the Creator, that power is transmitted to individual beings and all living things to be held inherently with, within each life. Now, when you see inherently here, I have to admit, I changed the word. It was indigenous, was the word, but indigenous just doesn't really resonate with people today. So I put inherent. It means it's, it's 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 inherently in them. So the creator has has transmitted to each individual beings and all living things to be held inherently with each life. This is the the power. Such power can be lost or corrupted only through denials of love and separation from God, because all power from God is pure. You see how that is substantiating what I just gave you in the the Scriptures here. In other words, all power is delegated by God, and it is always pure. It is righteous. It is just the delegated power. And... Glenda Green here calls it, uh, it is pure. And it can be lost or corrupted only through denials of love and separation from God. Delegated power. Now, i got to say something about this word delegated. I cheated here also. There's two words in here that I cheated on. I'm, I don't like the word cheat. I didn't really cheat. I try to make it more clear. The word here was surrogate. And... When I read this, every time I got to these words, I would hesitate, and I'd have to run through my brain. Okay, what does surrogate mean? What does indigenous mean? So I thought I would give you a word that is a synonym of it and it would be easier for you to understand. So actually, she said surrogate power, but I said delegated power is delegated by man to structure authority and forces external to himself, and I put here, government. As we go through this, there's only three paragraphs of this, but as we go through it, I want you to understand when you see inherently, when you see the word inherently, you think of people. When you see the word delegated, you think of government, because that's essentially what it means. Let's just read this whole thing again, okay? True power resides with God and is inherent thereto. Through enduring connections with the Creator, that power is transmitted to individual beings. See, this is what when, when um, in the Constitution it says, and we are endowed by our Creator. This is the same thing that this person is saying is that, that this power is transmitted to individual beings and all living things to be held inherently within each life. Such power can be lost or corrupted only through denials of love and separation from God. When you get away from God, then you get away from this inherent power and you get into big-time trouble. So the power can be lost or corrupted only through denials of love and separation from God because all power from God is pure. It's righteous. It's just. Delegated power, this is the kind of power that man delegates to as this says, a structure, authority, a force is external to himself. In other words, the people have delegated power to the government. And dele- delegated power can extend man's influence over the environment. However, when delegated power, this is power from the people, excuse me, uh, the power of government, when the delegated power assumes the rights of inherent power, it corrupts very quickly. In other words, what this is saying is delegated power has to operate under the auspices, under the outline, guideline, whatever, of those who who have given it the power, and the power is inherent in the people. And whenever that delegated power assumes the power that is only for the people, according to this, it corrupts very quickly. A government is delegated power delegated by the governed, that would be us. As long as it serves the needs of the governed, that would be the people, and respects the inherent power from which it is formed, in other words, the the government would understand it was formed by the people, the people have the power, that delegated power can be useful. That's why they formed a government to begin with, was because they needed some organization, they needed uh, to help them to defend themselves against foreign enemies and so forth. In other words, if there were 13, the 13 colonies were essentially sovereign. They were like 13 independent countries. Now, what if Spain uh, invaded America, the 13 colonies, and there was no central government at all, you would have chaos because you wouldn't have them communicating. They wouldn't be, be singing on the same sheet and they would make them vulnerable. So that's another reason that people unite in, in, uh, and they delegate their inherent power to another source, but that source has to be limited. And as long as that source recognizes that the real inherent power is from the people and don't assume that kind of power to themselves, all is well. And it says here, that that delegated power as long as it serves the needs of the governed and respects its inherent power from which it was formed that delegated power can be useful the moment delegated power that would be governmental power assumes the right of inherent power as if they have the power corruption will begin usually this is implemented by the use of force mandatory conformity Suppression of rights and dishonesty. Delegated power always draws its energy from inherent power. In other words, we the people have the power and that's where any delegated power draws its its power from, is from the source. When this is respected and openly acknowledged, in other words, when the delegated power openly acknowledges that they're not the supreme power and that their power comes from those that, that delegate it to them, uh, when it's openly acknowledged, delegated power can be an effective extension of authority. Although, if force and dishonesty have reversed priorities to give the false impression that delegated power, the governmental power, is the real power, you then have a situation where the flea is trying to own the dog. And the dog, <clears throat> that is the dog, and enforcing its claim with threats and punishment. Now, it's absurd that a flea can dic- give dictates to a dog, doesn't it? And that's the illustration. It, it would be ridiculous. Now, here's the last paragraph Under such oppressive conditions, nothing works better than a declaration of sovereign rights held. By inherent power. This is the power of all true liberators. It is what the founding fathers did in 1776. It has happened within communities, families, careers, and personal lives. Let me stop here for just one second to give you the gist of this. We're t- the whole thing ha- revolves around authority. We're talking about, in this case, she was talking about delegated power being governmental power, but it's the same thing in the home. For instance, in the in the family, the husband is the authority. And if for whatever reason the household becomes uh, out of order, it is no longer functioning the way that God designed it, then what the husband should do is make a declaration. Sometimes it could be even formal and written down. And that declaration would go something along these lines that, God has delegated authority to me, and I am responsible for the way this household is run. It is not running under the way uh, the way that it should be, so I'm making a declaration that these are the following changes that will take place and he says A, b, c D E and F whatever whatever they are and he's doing it as a servant of God. He is not being some type of dictator or tyrant, he's simply recognizing that he is responsible to God for his family and the way it it is it operates and he makes a declaration now the family now sees the declaration and if they are submissive to God they're going to be submissive to him but only to a limit if one of the articles for instance is for the wife they are doing poorly economically and he tells his wife that she needs to go turn tricks down on the corner, so bring in more extra income, of course the wife wouldn't be obliged to do such a thing because that would be against God's higher power. But that would be an aberration. Normally it would be things that would set it in order. And I'm just trying to expand your mind to see what this person is saying that there is a declaration. In other words, anyone who is in authority needs to recognize they're under God's authority, and it should be organized. Now, this is what happens when a person returns to the heart and activates the inherent power established by their creator. This is what happens. What is he talking about? This is what happens. When there is a declaration. That's what the the colonists did in 1776 with a declaration of independence. And he's saying... what the, the motivation or the, the, the uh, they did that. This is what happens when a person returns to the heart and activates the inherent power established there by the Creator. What the colonists were saying is, look, we had God-given rights. We have the right to defend ourselves. We have the right not to have to submit to evil and to tyranny. Sometimes delegated power fights back. Surprise, surprise although it never wins, for it has no authority of its own. You know how much money the federal government produces each year? Zero. They get all the money from the people. Without the people giving the government money, they have no money. You see how the power is essentially the same. They have no power unless the people give it to them. So I thought this would be uh, be informative. I also have something else down here. I want you to turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 17, and you can follow along with me there. What I'm trying to, to do is help you see that God has imposed very strict limitations on government. When I say government, it could be kings, rulers, prime ministers, sheiks, whatever. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. We're going to read verses 14 through 20. Verse 17. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, of course, this would be the land of Canaan, the promised land, And you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me. Like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as a king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, (laughs) I'm not going to say anything there. I'm just going to move on. <clears throat> Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Who by the way who did this? Remember Solomon? Solomon multiplied horses, I think he I don't know how many kazillion horses he had. And but when it gets to any uh, they weren't to return to Egypt and then it says in verse 16 continuing He said to you, you shall never again return that way. In other words, they weren't to put their hope in Egypt, but in the Lord. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Did Solomon do that? Just a little bit. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And what did they do? They turned his mind and his heart away from the Lord. But this was forbidden nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. In other words, what is the king's, what is his guideline? What is he to go by? Where is the law? It's the law that God gave, and he is to have it with him all the time, and he is to write it down. And it goes on, By carefully observing all the words of the law and these statutes of the law, of course this is talking about the Mosaic law here, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment To the right or the left, so that he and his sons may continue in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. What I'm trying to show you, beloved, is God has very strongly limited the authority that he has delegated. He has delegated authority, but it is very severely limited. Okay. If you bear with me for just one second let me get rid of this. I'm going to bring up. <coughs> All that was introduction for today's message. I have the proof. It says right there. Romans 13, lesson number six, nine, 12, 10. That's today. And some of you might be thinking, oh, no, he's not going to start now. How long are we going to be here? Well, I'll tell you what. We'll be here till we're done. Romans chapter 13, verse 4. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. We take it a phrase at a time, a bite at a time. Actually, when it says for it is, that's the New American Standard Version. But in the ESV, English Standard Version, you have for rulers. Let me get this where you can see both here. See, in the New American Standard, which is the one I'm using, it says for it is a minister. The English Standard Version says for rulers. This is... uh, also, uh, now we have in the King James Version, New International Version, Revised Standard Version, it says for he. So you have three different translations here, for it, for rulers, or for he. Actually, the Greek says gar estin. And estin, it's, uh, it's uh, in the present active indicative third person singular of amy and can be translated he, she, or it. For he keeps on being is probably probably the best translation. So I have a few people in here that follow that, and the rest of you are saying, please move on. A minister is, the Greek word there is diakonos, a noun. It's a noun to singular masculine. It means a minister, a servant, or a deacon. That's where deacons get their name from or their title is diakonos, and it really means a servant. So guess what? Those who are in power in the civil realm are servants. Sometimes servants are considered slaves, but here it's called, not considered necessarily a slave, but a servant. Then it says, for it, or he or she, depending on what translation you have, is means keeps on being a minister or servant of God to you for good. So whether it's it or he or she, the third, I'm giving you three different versions here for it. If you have a new uh, American standard version, when it says for it, it would be government for government is that would be designed to be a minister or a servant of God to you for good. So whether it's in, it's, a neuter, meaning government, or if it's in the masculine or feminine, he or she, in any case, it is a servant, meaning, and this is the present tense, they keep on being a servant to God to you for good. God never designed government to be a minister of evil. Never, never, never. When it becomes evil, it no longer is a servant of God for good, but becomes a servant of Satan. God designed the structure of civil authority in human realm to be subject to himself to do good, whether it is a monarchy, an oligarchy, or a republic, it doesn't what no matter what. God delegated this authority for what? Good. For good to the people. Here's Proverbs chapter eight, verse fifteen and sixteen. By me kings reign. And rulers decree justice. By me princes rule and nobles all who judge rightly. You hear that? Those kings and rulers that decree justice and rule nobly are all who judge rightly. That's what God holds them to, judging rightly. God has limited governmental authority to act on his behalf only for good. It has no legitimate authority when it steps out of that limitation. When a ruler encroaches on a Christian's faith or his freedom, he becomes a servant of Satan, and God does not require us to submit to Satan or his servants, according to James chapter 4, verse 7, and First Peter chapter 5, verse 9 tells us to resist the devil. Resist the devil. Now, that word resist is important. Because resisting is what? Defensive. We never go on the offense against Satan. We never go on the offense against demons. We never go on the offense against government our rulers our kings. This is defensive in nature. But we are commanded to resist Satan, to resist evil. parallel verse is first Peter chapter two, verse 13 and 14. It says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governments as, excuse me, governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and praise of those who do right. Kind of sounds a little like Romans 13, doesn't it? So The rulers are to do what? To those who do good? Say it. Praise. To those who do evil, punish. But you can't get those mixed up. Then it goes on to say, But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it, or he, does not bear the sword for nothing. What do you think that's talking about? Capital punishment. The sword. That is a metaphor for capital punishment. And let me tell you something, folks. Capital punishment is a biblical principle. Here's a few verses. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Exodus 21, 12. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. Leviticus 24, 17. And if a man takes the life of any human being... He shall surely be put to death. Now, I want to say one thing about this capital punishment. People say, well, we have capital punishment today. Really? Somebody murders one person, heinous crime, multiple murder, whatever it may be, and he's on death row for up to, what, 20 years? That the taxpayer has to pay for all that time. And I'm not sure, there are some people that say that's cruel and unjust punishment in itself. That you have someone that is locked up in a cage. I was going to say this earlier, but I decided not to, but now I decided to say it. (laughs) Now that it came into my mind again. um, There are hundreds of thousands of people who are locked up in cages in this country. We call them prisons for doing something that, uh, breaking some statute or some rule. And to me, that's cruel and unjust punishment. You know, in the Old Testament, they didn't have any prisons. And I think that would be not such a bad idea today. Because if you stole something, if you harmed someone, whatever that was, there was restitution to be paid. And if it was a capital crime, they were executed. They wouldn't lock people in cages for all this time because they broke some statute or whatever. And that's unfortunate. It's one of the things that brings us down as a society. And one of the things I think about is when you have someone that has burglarized or stolen from you and they get caught, they put them in a cage. Well, what good does that do you? I mean, you say, well, justice is served. Well, I think justice would be served better if they had to restore twofold whatever they took from you. And if they couldn't do that, then they're your slave till they worked it off. I thought that would be a pretty good idea. Um, of course, that's just me. Anyhow, um, capital punishment works when it's used. We're not using it. 20 years, and then uh, they give them this little sissified um, injection. That's not what the, what the Mosaic law said. God prescribed stoning to death. They, uh, that would be a, a bloody, horrible death. And then they took that bloody corpse and would hang it in a tree. Now, why would they do that? Well, they would. <laughs> good question, huh? Why would they do that? Well, of course, they wanted everybody to see it. Mama could take little Johnny. Johnny, see that up there? Oh, Bobby! Yeah, that's right. That's what happens when you rape somebody. That's what happens if you murder somebody. And that would imprint on that child's brain, and he would think twice before he would do something like that. Of course, they would cut the corpse down before nightfall. That was part of the uh, law. But today, even the suggestion that you see someone get a shot in the arm... Uh, it would scar the little darlings for life. I mean, they don't do that. I'm not advocating any of this, other than just giving you principles. Capital punishment, when it when it is used, works a hundred percent of the time. I guarantee you, when you execute somebody, they're not going to harm anybody else. And I'm not talking about twenty years later either. If somebody was in the in the uh, progress of um, Committing a crime, and they sh- they pull out a gun to shoot somebody. If they thought, well, if I shoot, I might get able to get out on a technicality, or it'll probably be twenty years before they were get around. And I'll get three three cots, three hots in a cot for twenty years. Boom. But now, if he pulled that gun in the, in committing a crime, and he's going to shoot someone, he thought, now if I shoot this person, he dies. I'll be dead tomorrow. He might. He might pause, don't you think? If he knew that his life would be gone the next day. So, for the second time in this verse, for the second time in this verse, we are reminded that government is the servant of God. A servant is under obligation to render obedience to the one who has authority over him. He is not free to do whatever he wants. None of us are. He is empowered to give praise to those who do good and to execute God's wrath on those who do evil. An avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Here's a quote for you. This came from Martin Luther. He said, For God has delegated to civil magistrates in the place of parents the right to punish evildoers. So you parents, when you have the little darlings who are evildoers and you punish them with the belt rather than the sword, they might avoid the sword someday because that's what government is, at least according to Martin Luther. Here's my last point. It's very important to understand what this verse does not say, it does not say that government has the authority or sanction from God to bring wrath on the one who practices good. Never, never, never. So, this will be a good time for me to end. But before we close, I'd like everyone please to bow your heads. Close your eyes. I want privacy in here. I've been talking about the relationship between the, the Christian the believer and civil government, now I'm talking about the relationship of an unbeliever with God. The fact is that God did not come, to, Jesus Christ did not come to earth in order to make people better. He came to earth to give life to the dead. If a person is in this congregation, in this hearing of my voice, if you are trying to work your way to heaven, and you haven't accepted the free gift of salvation through believing in Jesus Christ, this is your opportunity to do so. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And He went to the cross. He died, was buried, and was resurrected and now offers eternal life to anyone who will believe in Him and Him alone for eternal life. Simply accepting the gift by believing in Jesus Christ means that you will be born again. Your ticket to heaven is guaranteed and it can be done right now. I'm not going to have you jump through any hoops. You don't have to raise your hand, walk an aisle. God knows exactly what you're thinking right now. And when you believe in Jesus Christ, you become a royal family member of God. And then it's time to get cracking and find out what God would have you do. So we thank you, Father, for this time you've given us to focus on these things. Pray that you will help us to look at our own life and that we will be independent thinkers and base our decision based on Your Word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.